0: Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. Today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 19. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 through 19. It's going to take a little bit of time for us to get there, so I want to tell the story, the backdrop behind Hebrews chapter three, and it's this: we know it well. Today, we have an issue with immigration. People from all over the country want to navigate or make their way to the United States of America. Why? Because it's a great uh, country of hope, of inspiration, of dreams, of ambition. If I can just, sh- 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 if I can just throw off the shackles in my current state, if I can just make this journey, if I can. Uh, finish the race, if I can reach my end goal in mind, if I can get to the United States of America, everything's going to be wide open, it's going to be exciting, there's going to be hope, there's going to be dreams, there's going to be ambitions, there's going to be a wonderful life that awaits me. And people from all over the world continue to navigate their way to countries or to places where they feel like I'm going to have freedom and hope and dreams realized. And there's been no migration of people all throughout the history of humanity, no greater than the people Of Israel. Think about this for a moment. The people of Israel were in bondage, they were shackled, they were under Pharaoh's hard hand. In fact, for 430 years. Can you imagine being a slave in bondage to an individual, not all of them, but for 400 and some plus years? And that was Israel's state. That was where they were at this place in life. Day in and day up, they woke up in the heavy handed a slave master, beat them down, broke them down, and treated them miserably so that they can build this vast, massive kingdom that pointed to their Pharaoh, who Pharaoh was in the eyes of most Egyptians was God that he was to be elevated and worshipped and exalted and here God's people are in bondage and they're building up this kingdom for a false god to be worshipped by people all across this region of the world and something happened we remember the story well We remember that the Israelites, after 400 plus years, were tucked safely in their bed. And there was that scent of roasted lamb coming out of the household. And if you remember the story that they slaughtered the lamb and they took the blood and the paintbrush and they brushed the doorpost of their house because God had told them to. And at the strike of midnight, what happened? The death angel passed through. And the death angel struck down every firstborn of the Egyptian nation. We're talking millions and millions of babies firstborn, whether they're newborn to 15 to 20 to 30 years of age, struck down in an instant at midnight. But that same death angel passed through the camp of Israel, and not one person was struck down. And God wanted to make a point. If it wasn't enough to take the firstborn of every person in Pharaoh or every father or mother and Pharaoh, he wanted to make the point and he went through the camp again and he struck down the firstborn of every animal just to make the point. And on that night when they woke up in the early hours of the morning, there was weeping. There was weeping from the palace of Pharaoh, losing his firstborn, all the way down to the weeping of the prisoner. He had lost his firstborn as well. There was nothing but weeping, sadness, mourning, grief. What had happened? We're losing millions and millions of the firstborn. And there's no hope for us. But the people of Israel were tucked nice. And securely and safely in their homes. And they woke up and they hadn't lost one firstborn in their entire camp. It was a glorious moment in the life and the history of the Israelites. God had heard their cry. God moved this strong arm into action. He struck down the firstborn, and he moved into Pharaoh's heart and soul and said, you got to let my people go. Remember, Moses said, let my people go, and he wouldn't. And here it is. He is saying, let my people go. It is a great exit. It's an orderly exit. It's not people that are climbing under the fence and they're scurrying about under the cover of dark no they're not trying to find their way to safety they're not worried about the police coming after them they're not worried about the hunting dogs coming after them this is a great and glorious exit god's people for the first time in over 400 years was proud they were hopeful They were filled with dreams and ambitions because the one true God had moved on their behalf. And in an orderly march of about 600,000 men, and you throw the women and the children in there, you're talking about 1.5 million people in a grand display of pride, a grand display of worship, a grand display of admiration of the one true God, 1.5 million people started the march. And they ravaged Egypt and took the riches as well. In fact, Pharaoh went as far as, hey, on the way out with everything that we own, can you put a blessing on our lives? And they kept marching, they kept moving, and they came to the very edge of the promised land or out of the wilderness. And I want you to think about this for a moment. Not only did they experience the great exodus, But when they came out on the other side of the splitting of the sea, God was right there waiting for them. He was there by an immense pillar of cloud by day, and he was there by an immense pillar of fire by night. It was God saying to his people, come to me, follow me, trust in me, put your faith in me, everything's going to go well, everything's going to... Uh, uh, work out well in your life just trust me obey me and follow me it reminds me of jesus of when he said or, or the disciples or when they the birth of jesus said we're going to call him emmanuel god is with us and here god is saying i'm going to be with you 24 hours a day seven days a week What a glorious opportunity to walk with God. What a glorious opportunity to know that God is by your side day in and day out, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But I want to listen to you, or listen to this. It began extremely well, but it fell apart in an instant. It began extremely well as they came out of Egypt, but it fell apart. In an instant. Never in the history of humanity has there been such a great beginning with such a bad ending. Let's go back. 600,000 men. We know that, uh, we know that they gathered the elders together and they sent uh, 12 spies into uh, the, the promised land to scope it out and to take notes. They were on a reconnaissance message, mission and they came back and we know the rest of the story. What happened? Fear. What's that? Fear. Fear. Yeah. The, media. the what? The news, bad. the news was bad. The media. They turned on the wrong channel and they got a bad report, right? 12 spies go out, 12 spies come back. Two spies are excited Joshua and Caleb. Ten spies, they're writing the next series in a Godzilla movie. They're saying, these are big people. They're strong people. They're overpowering people. In fact, in light of these people, we are nothing but mere grasshoppers. And the bad news permeated the camp. And the fear spread like wildfire. And they began to grumble, and they began to claim, uh, began to 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 grumble and to complain. And we know the rest of the story. What should have taken about four to five days ended up taking forty years. Here's the real tragedy: 1.5 million started out. They eventually, after 40 years, come to the edge of the promised land, and there's only two that were over the age of 20 that survived. The rest of them died. The rest of them were nothing but dust and graves scattered all throughout the wilderness over the course of 40 years. Just two, Joshua and Caleb. The group started out so well and it ended so poorly. Is this not the crises of humanity? Is it not? Uh, just on, on, a, on, a, on a simple matter of things, I know that uh, my wife has given me a honeydew list, and I'm going to be honest with you. I get highly motivated, and I jump right in and I get started, but if you ask her, Curtis, if you ask her, I've got several I've got several projects on a honeydew list that's left unfinished. I got a bathroom in the second floor where I tiled the bathroom, but I've yet laid to grow and put the uh, framing in, and the floor is torn up, and there's no tile, OK? I started painting the living room, and I painted the living room and I got the trim, and I just flat uh, uh, flat ran out of gas, and I haven't finished the living room. In fact, if you come over to my house and you look up at the ceiling, you're going to see the ceiling fan wires poking out of the ceiling. I have tremendous, go ahead and elbow your husbands, because I'm probably in, 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 in good company here this morning, but I have several projects that I've started, and I haven't, Finished. Is that not the tragedy of human beings, especially when it comes to spiritual matters? They start out with excitement. They start out with joy. They start out with excitement, and time passes and you can't find them. They're no longer uh, there to be found. And this is the grave tragedy when it comes to spiritual issues in our lives, especially here in America when we have so much, and we've become so self-sufficient, and we've become so self-grandized that we believe that we can live life apart from God because we have the knowledge and the money and the time to get the job done. When it comes to spiritual matters, that is simply not true. We tend to start out well, full of gas, full of steam, sputter, lurch, jerk, roll off in a ditch, or just flat right out of gas, right? Now, as we turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 through 19 I want to read this passage uh, I want to read this passage as a springboard to get us started here. So watch your step, friends. Make sure there's no evil unbelief laying around that will trip you up and throw you off course diverting you from the living God. Your your toes are, or Or, for as long as God's still calling it today, keep each other on your toes so sin doesn't slow down your reflexes. I need to slow down. If we can only keep our grip on the sure thing we started out with, we're in this with Christ for the long haul. And then he goes into Psalm 95, and we'll touch on that here briefly. But he says, Today, please listen. Don't turn a deaf ear, as in the bitter uprising. And then the writer of Hebrews goes back For who were the people who turned a deaf ear? Weren't they the very ones Moses led out of Egypt? And who was God provoked with for 40 years? Wasn't it those who turned a deaf ear and ended up corpses in the wilderness? And when he swore that they'd never get where they were going, wasn't he talking to the ones who turned a deaf ear? They never got there because they never listened, never believed. You know, the listeners in this early church were pretty much of the Jewish faith, and they were contemplating the message of the gospel with Jesus Christ. And so they were wrestling with their past history in the Old Testament and this new history that was going to come along in the person of Jesus Christ. So there was a real struggle in the hearts and souls of these early listeners. And so the, writing of, the writer of Hebrews went back to Psalm 95, which would have been a very familiar passage. Passage to the audience he was going back to the their call of worship in the evening on every Sabbath when they gathered together in the synagogue the priest uh, 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 serving in this particular service would bring about this call to worship and he says are we the people of his, pa- of, of his pasture, the flock under his care? And they would recount this every Sabbath, after Sabbath, after Sabbath. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah, in the wilderness, as you did in the wilderness. Listen, we know this story. Twelve spies, ten came back with a bad report. They talked about all the... Hittites and all the different ites. I think there might have been some Manchester ites in there as well. But nonetheless, there were armies and enemies against God, and they brought fear into the life of God's people. And we know that their testimony, when you think about what is written in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, summarizes the uh, Hebrews' response or the Jewish response or the Israelites' response to this one true God, is that they were just simply too afraid. They heard, and yet They rebelled. They sinned. They were disobedient and they displayed full on unbelief. And there was a clear warning to this early church. And a clear warning was found in verse 2. Don't fall away. Protect yourself from turning away. Guard yourself from departing. Protect yourself from forsaking the one true living God. Now the message I'm going to share this morning is not for genuine believers in a sense. When I'm talking about falling away in desertion, I'm not talking about that a Christian can lose their salvation. I'm of the mindset that a Christian Cannot lose what God has given them in terms of the salvation. I believe that we are saved by grace through faith alone. It's not of ourselves, it's not of good works, lest any man should ever stand and boast before Jesus in heaven. I believe that salvation is a gift that Jesus on the cross hands out and he gives to us and he begins this work in our lives. And there's no one, nothing, nothing human, nothing supernatural, nothing out of heaven, nothing. Nothing out of hell, no one around us that could ever come up and snatch that gift out of our heart and soul. It's a gift that was bought by the poured out blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, and He sealed us with the presence of His Holy Spirit, and He ushers that gift in, and no one and nothing could ever snatch that out and say, You're lost. You lost the gift. It can't be done. But what I'm talking about is I'm talking about like the Israelites, that there were two or 1.5 million in the camp, and they walked with God for 40 years in the wilderness, and they all died and were wasted away in the wilderness. And so what I'm talking about today is not those that have genuine, authentic, life-transforming experience with the living Lord Jesus Christ, who the Holy Spirit has come in and has sealed their fate for all of eternity. Who I'm talking about this morning are those among us that think they're saved. Those that they believe that they know Jesus Christ. Those that walk with the people of faith. Just like the Israelites in the wilderness. I'm talking about those that are religious. I'm talking about those who come into church and they sing the songs and they listen to the message and they take notes and they serve on the boards and they serve on the committees and they serve as elders and they serve as deacons and they serve as pastors and they serve as worship leaders. I'm talking to them that have been inoculated with the Christian faith. They got Just enough religion in them that they believe that they're saved. And I want to talk about the hallmark of salvation this morning is perseverance. The hallmark of salvation is fighting the good fight. The hallmark of salvation is finishing the race. The hallmark of Christianity is not how you start. It's how you finish. So as we turn our attention to the text in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, I want to make three observations this morning. Three observations out of here of Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 19. Having great spiritual privileges does not guarantee true saving faith. Just go back to Israel. They had every reason to believe. Put yourself back into that community, coming out of slavery, cloud by day, fire by night. God was with them day in and day out. God walked with them, talked with them, led them, brought them out of slavery. And the divine presence of God just permeated and filtrated the entire camp of 1.5 million people. If there was a people that should have believed, it should have been those that died and were wasted away in the wilderness, but they didn't. Great spiritual privileges does not guarantee true saving faith. When it comes to who is saved, God has a habit of turning our expectations upside down. When it comes to who's saved, God has a way of turning our expectations upside down. We can immediately begin thinking of a list of names that we know, without a shadow of a doubt, this person's got to be saved. I want to be honest with you. Just be honest with you. The only person in this room this morning that I know is saved is David Lemoyne that's it. I don't know anyone else's standing before a high and holy and righteous God. The only person in this room that I know is saved is David Lemoyne without a shadow of a doubt because of my experience with Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior these people were of privilege. We live in a society of privilege. We live in a society where uh, people in politics are people of privilege. They got great names and great uh, uh, reputations and they do great work. We got great mayors. We got senators, uh, representatives, uh, board of ed, you name it. We live in a society of privilege. You think about church. We live in a society of privilege where we have titles like pastor and elder and deacon and, and whatever titles there are in churches, we live in an age where titles are important and where uh, privilege or or honor is due to those who have a place of status, whether it's in the church or in the community. We live in a day and age of privilege, and we look at people day in and day out, and we go, wow, that's a person of privilege. They've done very well in their life. They've done very well. Look at the impact. Look at the influence. Look at the sphere of influence that they have in the church or in the community. This person has done very good for themselves, and they look very good from head to toe. And sometimes we just think, by default, this person's just got to be saved. There's just no question about it. But God turns that expectation upside down because oftentimes we look at somebody and we judge the book by the cover and we say, there's just no way this person could be saved. They have struggled with this sin. They've struggled with this habit. Uh, they've struggled with this or that. They just can't ever seem to get a uh, 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 victory over this thing in their life. And they trip and they stumble and they come into church and we go, and we pat them on the back and we go, oh, we're so sorry you tripped and fell again. Oh, God, I'm going to pray for you, brother. I hope you get through this and we look on them not as a brother and sister. We look on them as pity. Look at this poor fool. Can't get out of the ditch. Can't find freedom. Can't find joy. Can't be released from sin. This person, I mean, is there any hope for this person to ever find Jesus? Is there ever a hope for this person to ever be saved? Is there ever a hope for this person to be delivered? Is there ever a hope for this person to be free, to be like us? And God has a way of turning those expectations upside down. I'm going to share a story of two people that I had the privilege of serving, or not necessarily privilege, but two people that I met over the course of my life uh, being a Christian for about uh, 20, I don't know, about 25, 30 years. I don't count the yard marker because I don't want to have this testimony that if people ask me, well, uh, what is God doing in your life? I don't want to have to be in this situation where I'm backed in a corner and I go back 30 years and start talking about Jesus because I don't have anything going on in my life to pass 10, 15, 20, or the last week or month, if you get the point, and so uh, I want to share a story of two people. I collect uh, sports memorabilia okay if you if you know me, I like baseball, and I got a baseball it 's worth about ten thousand dollars I have Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, and uh, who 's the other Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris. Somebody else. I got three autographs on this ball. It's worth about nine or ten thousand dollars, and it's sitting on uh, uh, my home office or my uh, guest bedroom in a nice display case. If you're uh, if you're thinking about breaking in, please don't. I got an alarm system, motion sensors, and I got a vicious 19 pound Boston Terrier that's going to get a hold of your ankles. All right. Uh, So if you're thinking about breaking in, uh, I I strongly caution you in doing so for your own safety and security. Please don't uh, come in after my baseball. But this is my most prized possession. This is a hand carved cross from a gentleman that I spent about four and a half years with that nobody would ever think was saved because he was a transvestite prostitute. I a wonderful street ministry, and this individual came to me from time to time and needed assistance, wanted help because they were stuck. Or they were uh, uh, enslaved uh, with crack cocaine. And in the evenings on Dixie Highway, just one block off of our church where I served, uh, would put on uh, the clothes and the lipstick and the high heels and we'd begin walking up and down Old Dixie Highway, selling their body out for 20, 30 bucks only so that they could turn around and go to a drug dealer and get a. a nugget of crack for $5 and get high, only to go out and walk up and down Old Dixie night after night after night after night. And this individual would come to me uh, time and time again and say, Listen, I'm not asking for any handouts, but I do need some help. I don't have any money. I don't have any food. And their favorite uh, food was, and uh, get this, I kind of chuckle, was being a Sausage. And we had cans and cases of Vienna sausage. And this individual would not let me give them Vienna sausage. They were too proud to take the gift. What they really wanted was an opportunity to earn it. So I would scramble around and find things in the ministry, starting with my car being washed, only because they pointed out that it was dirty and needed to be washed, and different uh, 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 handyman uh, things like the toilets and what have you. And I'd walk them around, and I had checklists. And I kept an ongoing checklist because I knew this person was going to come to me every seven to ten days looking for food and looking for much more, a friend. Somebody that would sit there and hold their hand and listen to their story and cry with them and understand failure and understand uh prison and understand bondage and understand low self-esteem and understand worthlessness and they'd come and they'd sit there for hours on end and we would talk and we'd talk about the deeper things of life we talk about Jesus we talk about salvation, we talk about grace, we talk about mercy, we talk about unconditional love and this person never came off a crack and never never walked away from old Dixie, continued to sell their body out as I packed up my van or my heart and headed up to Birmingham, Alabama to go to seminary and this person was still in the same condition they were when I met them four years prior but they had a heart of gold God turns our expectations upside down on those who are saved and who are not I'll tell you another story I spent four years in seminary and I went out to a small church in West Alabama and uh, believe wholeheartedly God called me into that church I felt that there were some things in my past that would kept me from serving, and lo and behold, a brother of mine said, hey, listen, this is going to be a perfect fit. I no longer speak to this brother because it wasn't a perfect fit. But I sent him my resume, and he sent it out to the church, and we drove out and we interviewed, and lo and behold, they asked me to come serve as their pastor. And for the next six years, it was nothing but hell. It was a sheer grind to get up day in and day out, to go stand in a pulpit and realize that you are speaking and preaching to a valley of dead bones. People were lost, and they had been lost for 30 and 40 and 50 years, and they held titles like chairman of the deacon, chairman of the hospitality. They ran the church, and there was no way Jesus was going to get in there. There was no way that the Holy Spirit was going to get his foot in the door and And bring deliverance and bring salvation and bring favor among the body of people. They were so entrenched in their sin. Their heart was so hard. And they were so arrogant that nobody could possibly have something to share or save, share or or give to them. And I celebrated their 100th anniversary as a pastor in that church. And I was the 37th pastor of that church in a 100 years. I stayed there because God called me there and kept me there for six years. There was only one other pastor that lasted longer than me. And it was a sheer grind. And these people had titles, they had power, they had prestige, and they wanted to meet me at every corner and every junction and say, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We're not going to go there. That's our, not our ministry. Nicole will attest to this. We went out, and we uh, went out for our uh, grand celebration with the deacons of the church, and we went down to a restaurant, and we sat there, and the deacon started telling a story. And I asked him, well, you know, what about the church and the community? I already knew the community was uh, uh, 51% black and 49% i already knew that there was uh, basically a 50 50 and i sat there and nicole and i sat there for two hours and we listened to story after story after story of these deacons sharing stories about this person and that person and dropped the n-word no less than 50 to 60 times on our first dinner and i went home that night grieved and i looked at nicole and i said we've made a mistake There's no way God brought us out into this wilderness. There's no way that God ushered us. I didn't spend this kind of time and this kind of money to hang out with a bunch of fools. And it broke my heart to realize that these people were so hateful and so divisive, yet thought they were saved. Be careful when you look at an individual Be careful when they share their title. Be careful when you look at their position. Don't be enthralled in the external appearances, because God turns that upside down. Did not Jesus say the least of these? Did he not say the last in line Didn't he say the one that humbles their self is a servant? Did he not say the dregs of society... Did he not teach a parable about this great fest and they sent the messengers out and they sent out the invitation to the the brightest, the wealthiest, the well-to-dos, the the people that we want to hang out with because it makes us feel good, because we're in this inner circle. We must be popular because we're hanging out with the popular. We want this name and this recognition, recognition because of the relationships and the network that we've built in our lives. And did not Jesus say they didn't come? And he says, I want you to go and I want you to turn society. I want you to turn your town upside down. I want you to bring the least of these. I want you to bring the prostitute. I want you to bring the drug addict. I want you to be the person possessed with demons. I want you to go out and I want you to find the trash of society. And I want you to bring them into my house for my party. If you don't get this, you're missing it. You're missing the gospel. It's the least of these. We live in America where we're so enthralled with people of power and money and influence. And did not Jesus say, enter through the narrow gate? For wide is the gate and broad is the path that leads to destruction. But small is the gate and narrow is the path that leads to life. Harless, God turns those expectations upside down to people that we think there's no way they're going to be saved. There's no hope. Look at their life. Look at what they've done. It's nothing but a mess. It's nothing but failure. It's nothing but sin. Praise God for grace. Praise God for God's amazing grace. That when we're not looking for him, he is always looking for us. He's always seeking us out. He's always extending that hand of grace to the least of these and saying, come, listen, commune, be my son. Be with me forever and all of eternity. Be with me in heaven. Another takeaway Uh, from this passage or another uh, observation is number two. We might run out of time and that's okay but I'm going to press on. The warning of falling away applies to everyone. Somebody read that again for me as I take a sip of water. Let's all say that. Let's say that together. Okay. The temptation is for us to think pretty highly of ourselves. I know that's true of me. I know that probably wanted to, uh, probably wanted to, well, probably, the, the the mother of all sins, let's be honest, the mother of all sins is pride. Out of pride comes everything. Pride just says, pride just says, well, God, in this instant or this moment in my life, I just simply know better than you. I know more than you. I, I know what I'm doing. Is it not true, Curtis, right? Uh, we all trip over pride in its many forms, But when you really narrow it down, it goes back to the Garden of Eden. And it wasn't the sin of the apple. It was the fact that God said, hey, listen, you can have absolutely everything, just don't touch this. And as soon as God said to Adam and Eve, don't touch this, what did they do? Stared at it, focused on it, wanted it, lusted after it, chased it, caressed it, smelled it. No, not today. Day in and day out, they'd go to the garden. They'd look at that and go, oh, "It's beautiful." But God said, "Don't touch it. Don't, 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 don't eat it." And what did they do, Curtis? They bought in a lie. Satan said, "Hey, listen, God's just holding something back. He doesn't want you to be a smartest guy. Just go ahead and take that, and you'll be like God, and you won't need God." That's the root of all sin in our lives. Actually, we want to live a life apart from God. We don't want God calling you shots. We don't want God telling us what to do. That is the very essence of sin in our lives, is pride. At some point in time in my life, I know better. I know more. God can't possibly know everything. I'm intelligent. I got a master's degree. I've studied the Bible. I've, I've, I've done well in the workforce. God, God at this point in time of my life, you're, you're making a mistake. You're being a little soft here. I know what's good for me. I know what's best for me in this situation. And I take the step or I take the sniff or I take the bite. And I realize as soon as I get that in my hand and I smell it and I bite it, I can feel the shackles. The clamp on my hand and the clamp on my soul and it says, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. You thought you knew better than God and you said no to God. I got you. You're in, that's the essence of every sin in our life is pride. These people were proud. This early church, they had a proud, rich history. And the preacher in Hebrews is going back to Psalm 95 and he says, listen, listen, remember recount, recall what God has done in your life because you're becoming proud and arrogant and you're wrestling and you may think that you know the one true God, but the one true God is to be known through Jesus strung up on the cross. The one true God is to be known by that Jesus that was buried in the grave for three days. The one true God is most recognized by the Jesus on the third day that was resurrected. The one true God is the Jesus who conquered death, hell, and the grave and walked around for 40 days and ministered and talked with and prayed with, and worked with people only to be lifted up and seated on his throne for all of eternity. That's the one true God. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't buy into the counterfeit. Don't be led astray. Don't be blindsided. Don't reject the one true God. Our temptation is to think very highly of ourselves. And that's why this warning is for all of us. I know there's times in my life when I sit down and and it uh, may be even during my time of devotion. I open up the Bible and I spend time with prayer with God and, and I think too highly of myself. I think that I've arrived. I think that oh my goodness, can you believe they did that? I'm I'm a lot further. I'm just being. I'm a lot further ahead in my walk with Jesus than they are. And we have a tendency to make ourselves feel good by comparing ourselves to others. And you know something about David Lemoyne? I can always find somebody that's worse off than me that makes me feel good about myself. That's the lie. That's the temptation. That's the destruction in thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Because on any given day, we can find somebody whose life is a mess and we can point to that mess and say, oh, by the grace of God, there go I. By the grace of God, uh, uh, thank God I'm not in a mess. Thank God I'm like, not like so-and-so. Thank God that I walked with God and I didn't get involved with that. And we have a tendency to really think too highly of ourselves. Listen, This passage of Scripture is really teaching us or sharing with us that that we need to be open. We need to be sensitive moment by moment to the Spirit of God to bring humility and to keep or guard or protect this soul of ours so that it's teachable and pliable and moldable by our Savior. That's why I think accountability is so important. This passage really does speak to the fact that we need one another. I know that there's been times when I've hid behind my job and I've hid behind my travel and I've bounced around a couple small groups and I used my travel as an excuse. But the truth of the matter is I just didn't want to sit there for two hours and listen to people. I thought I might be smarter to them or have more to offer. And it's really a, 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 a testimony in my life that God changed my heart and brought some humility and some uh, teachable spirit in my life and has put a desire in my life to be a part of a men's group that Marv leads but we need each other there's no such thing as a lone ranger Christianity I cannot be who God wants me to be apart from other men and women in my life rubbing up against me as iron sharpens iron one man or one woman sharpens another I need people that see something from a different perspective I need people to confront me I need people to call me out better better, better the rebuke of a Brother or sister in the Lord, or than the the kiss of a stranger or an enemy. amen, and we need that small group experience. We need that fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ because it keeps us on the right course. We all have blind spots. I'm going to pause here for a moment. Nicole, do I have any blind spots? Uh, we're not going to talk about that right now uh, she you'll write them down for later. All right. She knows the blind spots, right? Your wife know your blind spots, brother? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, listen, I don't say that uh, my wife doesn't get uh, hysterical. She gets historical. <laughs> I got a wife that's even keeled. She does not get his- hysterical with me. I'm blessed in that. I, my wife is even keeled. What you see is what you get. But let's be honest. Sometimes uh, our spouse can be historical. And, and I can be Historical, But we need that rubbing. We need that uh, abrasiveness. If you've ever sharpened a knife, you know the the process of sharpening a knife. It's iron against iron. You're nicking and chipping and smoothing and sharpening away, and we need that. So I want to encourage you, if you're not in a small group, if you're not in in, in a relationship built on accountability, I'm talking about the hard questions, gentlemen. I'm not talking about, well, can you bleed the rainstorm we had on Thursday? Thursday night. I'm not talking about, well, how green is your grass? I'm not talking about, well, man, the Yankees are doing really uh, poorly. I'm not talking about I'm talking about the hard questions, gentlemen. I'm talking about, you know the questions that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the thought life. I'm talking about where you go on the internet. I'm talking about those are the questions that you have to have somebody in your life that's willing to ask those. You'd be surprised if you looked at the statistics, statistics of the number of pastors across America that are enslaved to pornography week in and week out and they get up and they try to preach and teach God's word, but they're shackled. They're shackled to sin. We need that accountability. I don't care if you're the pastor, the elder, the deacon, the Sunday school teacher. I don't care who you are. You have to have accountability in your life because the enemy is coming after you you got a target on your back. If you love Jesus and you're serving Jesus and you want to be effective in the kingdom of Jesus, you have a target on your back and you have to have brothers and sisters to protect you and watch over you and guard that target. They have to stand in defense. they got to stand in the breach. they got to stand between you and the temptation. they got to stand between you and the enemy and you have to have that relationship and accountability in your life or you're going to be struck down. And you're going to be just nothing but another casualty falling away in the wilderness. And then, lastly, we're wrapping up here. A good start does not guarantee a good finish. Somebody help me out as I take a sip of water here. Somebody go ahead and read that out for me, or all of you read that at this time. The real test of salvation is perseverance. The key. Passage. The key verse in Hebrews 3 is verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original, our original conviction firmly to the very end. Here are several translations. To the very end. If we can only keep our grip on the sure thing we started out with, we're in this with Christ for the long haul. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold to the beginning of our confidence, steadfast to the end. You get it? It's about perseverance. Listen, let's be honest. Life is tough. Life is challenging. Life kicks us in the gut. I know that life has actually kicked me in the groin or time or two and you got to take the knee and you're looking for that breath. Life can be horrible. Life can be terrible. Life can be painful. And I've been in those situations. I've been in it professionally, I've been in it personally, and I've been in it uh, relationally. And there's times where I get down and life st- Stinks. Life is painful. Life has sucked the wind out of my lungs. Life has sucked the wind out of my sails. And I'm standing there, and I'm immobilized, and I'm paralyzed, and I can't even begin to think of taking the next step with God. There's times in my life, even though I walked with Christ 25 to 30 years, I still wake up, and there's days where I want to pull the ripcord. There's days when I want to give up. There's days when I say, this is too re- restrictive. There's days when I say I want to have fun. There's days when I say I want to do what I want to do. There's days when I just want to make David Lemoyne happy at all costs, regardless of who that hurts. There's days where I simply just want to throw in a towel, and I want to raise my hands, and I want to surrender, and I want nothing to do with this thing called Christianity. Have you been there? And it's in that moment that God's Spirit gently comes in, puts his arm around me, and says, we've got to finish. you got to fight the good fight, Dave. you got to run the Good race, Dave. You've got to finish. It's so true. When Jesus says, I chose you. You did not choose me. I know my salvation started with Jesus choosing me. In a pit. I know that every day I get up and I think about God, or I worship God, or I open up the Bible, or I study something in relation to God, if I have a good thought about somebody, if I have the motivation or the desire to help somebody, I know that absolutely everything regarding that is a gift of grace, and it is started by God, equipped by God, empowered by God, enabled by God, and by God's help, it will be finished by God's grace. Look around. I've been a member of this church for nine years. I've seen a lot of people come and go for whatever reason. I served in a ministry, uh, men's disciple ministry, where I intentionally went into prisons. I went out on the streets. I brought uh, male prostitutes, drug addicts, drug dealers, you name it. I lived with them. I ministered to them. That door was a revolving door door, hundreds after hundreds would come through that door, and they'd sleep in my room, and they'd eat at my table, and they'd sit in my Bible study year after year after year. It was a revolving door. I could probably give you five people that got it. Give you five people that you could say, Jesus really moved in this person's life. We don't know where we're at, but we know the parable of the sower. And if you crunch the numbers, 25% of the good seed fell on fertile soil. That's the heartbreak of ministry. That's the heartbreak of being a pastor is sowing that seed and watching 75%. If you want to use the numbers, walk away from it. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And this message, or this passage, points us to this fact. If our faith is real, if our faith is genuine, if we'd have an authentic encounter with the one true living Lord Jesus Christ, when he enters into the human soul, he doesn't despise, he doesn't give up, He doesn't push them aside. He doesn't cast them into the heap of the garbage heap of humanity. No. When Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit gets into a person's soul, it is forever. It's for every day in this world, and it's for every day thereafter. Perseverance and endurance. Is the hallmark of authentic, genuine salvation with Jesus Christ. Remember Demas? Paul raved about Demas. He says, I'm down here as a prisoner of Christ. Look at my co-labours. Boy, he was just elevating Demas. Demas was was with him. Demas was uh, Demas on the spot. He was right there. He was his right-hand man. And then later on, what did Paul say about Demas? Two sentences about Demas. What did he say later on? Demas loved the world and deserted me. I want to encourage you to safeguard your testimony. Build accountability into your lives. Have communion day in and day out with Jesus Christ. Circle yourself with a Paul and a Timothy and a Barnabas. Protect what God has entrusted to you. Let that grow. Let it mature. Let it nurture you and nurture others. And by all means, by the grace of God, finish well. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.